0: Aren't you glad I didn't call on you to do the scripture reading this morning? You you did a really good job, Alex. Genealogies. When it comes to Bible reading, um, I'm sure you would agree that the genealogies in the Bible are probably some of the most um, difficult to read through. They're among the most difficult to um, enjoy, to, to see the use of, maybe. But the genealogies in the Bible are in the Bible, and like the rest of the Bible, like the rest of the Scriptures, they're God-breathed, and they're profitable. And um, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 is... God-breathed and profitable for us. Um, J.C. Ryle, the godly Anglican uh, leader in the late 1800s, he wrote this about the genealogy of Jesus. Let no one think that these verses are useless. Nothing is useless in the Bible. Every word of it is inspired. The chapters and verses which seem at first sight unprofitable, are all given for some good purpose. Look again at these 17 verses, and you will see in them useful and instructive lessons. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Um, In case you didn't figure it out, we're going to start a study through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, by God's grace and providence, by the time Christmas Sunday gets here, we'll be on Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, where Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus. But we don't just want to skip there. Uh, I read this week in uh, J.C. Riles, no, um, R.C. Sproul's commentary on Matthew. He wrote about a missionary who was ministering to a, a tribe who didn't have a written language, so therefore, obviously, they didn't have the Bible in their own language, And this this missionary picked Matthew to be the first gospel that she translated after she painstakingly took years to teach them uh, to to read and to write. But she skipped the genealogy. And then the day came when um, the the book of Matthew was delivered in their language, and nobody seemed to care. There, There seemed to be no... Interest. There seemed to be no fruit from that. And then um, some time went by, and then she, she uh, revised her translation, and this time she included the whole book of Matthew, including the genealogy. And uh, there, there came to be something of, of a revival among the people there, and several people were saved. And she talked to the leader of that particular tribe, and he told her, that the genealogy helped them to see that Jesus was a real person, a real man. He wasn't just a story. He wasn't just a fairy tale or a fable. And that's what the tribespeople were used to. And so the the genealogy of Jesus Christ is very useful. And Matthew tells us in verse 1 what his point is, in fact, in uh, taking the time to sketch out the genealogy of Jesus. So he says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we've seen a number of times in our recent studies that Christ is translated from the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word uh, for Messiah, which means anointed one and um, the Old Testament painted the picture of this anointed suffering servant of of the Lord, of Jehovah, who would sit on David's throne and do all of these wonderful things and who would, in fact, be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth, not just to Israel. But this Messiah had to be a descendant of David and he had to be a descendant of Abraham. And so that is what Matthew is setting out to do. In the rest of Matthew's gospel, Matthew is going to give the account of Jesus' teachings, Jesus's wonderful works, including his miracles, and, and of course at the end, Jesus' death and resurrection. And all of that narrative from Matthew from Matthew, will prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But all of that would be a waste of time if Jesus was not a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. So it's very important for Matthew to to lay this out. So... Um, There's five lessons for us about Jesus from his genealogy. And the first lesson is, you can see this on the back of your bulletin, Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. So Matthew says that. He's the son of Abraham, end of verse 1. And then verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. So Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. Why is that, Why is that important? Well, the Old Testament, particularly the book of Genesis, uh, tells us that Abraham um, is the father of the faithful. We read, for example, in Genesis 12.3, God says to Abram at the time, before he changed his name to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then that promise is repeated several times in the book of Genesis. Chapter 22 and verse 18 is another one. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So this uh, promise begins with Abraham, but then it's expanded to his his offspring. And this includes Jesus, by the way. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. We're, we're going to see that uh, Jesus did not share Joseph's DNA. Joseph was not involved in the conception of Jesus. Jesus was miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, even though he rightfully and legally shares Joseph's genealogy. We'll talk about that more. But, But never fear, because Jesus also had a mother, and Jesus did have Mary's DNA. He shared Mary's blood And Mary was a biological, blood daughter of Abraham. And so Jesus was a uh, descendant of Abraham in every sense of the word. You can read about Jesus' genealogy in Luke chapter 3 in verses 23 through 38. Matthew seems to, well, he does trace Jesus' genealogy through Joseph. And then Luke seems to trace his genealogy through Mary. But it turns out that Abraham's physical descendants, the Jews, did not exhaust the scope of these promises. That was the immediate fulfillment. Part of the Abrahamic covenant was that his descendants would be uh, so numerable that um, they'd be like the the sands of the seashore in number, in other words, beyond number. And indeed, God had granted Abraham uh, many, many descendants. He's the, the father of the nation of Israel. But surely, all of the aspects of the Abrahamic covenant could not have been fully fulfilled through Abraham himself or even through the Jews. And we see that in Galatians chapter three. Turn there with me, please, to Galatians chapter three. in verse 16, where Paul writes, "Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring." And we, we just read that from Genesis 22 and verse 18. And then Paul continues in Galatians 3 and verse 16 to say, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. So Paul says that this promise from God to Abraham was never intended to be exhausted by just the Jews, but this one singular person who would emerge from the Jews. And Paul identifies that person who is Christ. Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. He is the one who is a blessing to all of the families, all of the nations of the earth because of the gospel, because of the great salvation that Jesus worked out in our behalf. He's the Savior of the Jews, but he's also the Savior of the Gentiles. In fact, we read about that at the end of chapter 3 in Galatians. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise if you belong to Christ through faith, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. You are Abraham's offspring. And you inherit the promises, the covenant that God had given to Abraham and through his seed, Jesus Christ, ultimately. So Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, and that was a very, very important aspect of his origin. But the second thing that we learn about Jesus from his genealogy is that he saves all kinds of sinners. He saves all kinds of sinners. And I won't reread all that Alex read from verses 2 through 16, but uh, if you spend any amount of time researching uh, Jesus' genealogy, you will see that this is one messed up family tree. This family tree has not been sanitized by Matthew. It's not been cleaned up. The embarrassing parts have not been swept under the rug there are many, many embarrassing figures in Jesus' genealogy. For example, there are good kings, but there are also bad kings. Um, we have listed Rehoboam, Joram, Ammon, and Jeconiah, who were not only bad kings in Israel, but they were evil idolatrous, wicked men. Um, Tamar is listed, and uh, Tamar was uh, Judah's daughter-in-law. Her her husband had died, and she disguised herself as a prostitute, and she basically tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into impregnating her. And uh, that's where her two twins came from. And then there's Judah. He had relations with, with a prostitute. And then there's Rahab, who was a professional prostitute in Jericho. And then David, of course, was guilty both of adultery and murder, adultery with Bathsheba and conspiracy, to commit murder with her husband, Uriah. They're they're all sinners. And if we pulled the string on the lives of all of these characters, uh, we could be assured that eventually we're going to see that these are sinners. Jesus was related to sinners. He was not ashamed to be descended from sinners. And not only were they sinners, but um, I did say all kinds of sinners. And so, for example, women are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Tamar, I already mentioned her, and Rahab are mentioned. Ruth, Bathsheba, she's not named, she's alluded to, the wife of Uriah, and Mary, so one, two, three, four five, six women are included in Jesus' genealogy, and that was unusual because in uh, ancient culture, including in ancient uh, Israel, genealogies were given through the man, through through men, because that's how birthrights and inheritances were derived, not, not to mention the low view of women that a lot of people had in that culture, Uh, there was a Jewish prayer, not given by inspiration of God, but it was cultural in which Jewish men would say, thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, and I'm not a woman, and I'm serious. That was was a prayer. And so there was a low view of women that pervaded the, the culture, and so in that darkness comes this light of uh, Jesus descending from women and men and women being explicitly included in his family tree. Most of Jesus's ancestors were, were Jewish. Part of the point is to show that Jesus is Jewish himself, but his family tree was not limited to Jews. For example, Ruth was a Moabitess. And earlier we looked in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There's a similar passage in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11 where Paul says, Here, that is in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And Jesus' very family tree proves that point. Later on, in uh, Matthew chapter 1, thinking again about how uh, all of Jesus' ancestors were sinners, we're going to hear why Jesus came into the world. The, The angel instructed Joseph to name his son Jesus, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. And that gives us a clue as to how Jesus will do that. How will Jesus save his people from their sins? By identifying with them. He's not going to be an actual sinner himself, but he he identifies with sinners. He identifies with sinners in his genealogy, but he's especially going to identify with sinners in his death on the cross because in his death on the cross, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. Our sins were imputed to him. He identified with us. And he shows this. He, he uh, prepares the way for this in his own genealogy. And it also reminds us of the, the point of Jesus' coming into the world. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a Faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, and that's what we celebrate this time of the year. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul adds, of whom I am chief. This is why Jesus came into the world. And this is a lesson from his genealogy. Jesus saves all kinds of sinners. The third lesson from his genealogy is that Jesus is the legal heir of King David's throne. Jesus is the legal heir of King David's throne. We've seen that in verse 1. He's the son of David. Verses 6 and 7, interrupting the genealogy here. Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And on down to the Christ in verse 17. He's a descendant of David. And not only these specific mentions... Of David, Uh, but David is the prominent figure in Matthew's list. And by the way, isn't it it providential that God would use a man like Matthew? We're, We're gonna see, we're gonna be introduced to Matthew later on. Do you remember what Matthew did for a living? His name was Levi, he was a tax collector. And what did tax collectors do? But they kept lists. They needed to keep track of who paid taxes and who owed taxes. And they kept track of who was related to whom. No computer systems, just painstaking labor and toil of keeping lists. And so it was right up Matthew's alley to be used of the Holy Spirit to write Jesus's Genealogy. But Matthew didn't include every single literal ancestor of Jesus. There are generations that are skipped, and that's not unusual. That's not even unusual in the Old Testament where other genealogies are given. It's it's a representative, intentionally selective genealogy from. Matthew. It still proves the same point, whether he uh, included every single biological ancestor or not. But what's interesting is that Matthew selectively chose these representative ancestors, so that there were fourteen up to um, in in each group up to David, and then there were fourteen from the. Um, The captivity in Babylon, and then 14 after that. Three groups of 14. And more than one commentator that I looked at this week pointed out that this is uh, a feature of Hebrew, of the Hebrew language, that sometimes used uh, numerology as symbolism. And, And this particular kind of numerology in Hebrew. Is called the uh, gematria. And so um, these three groups of 14, they uh, actually spell out the consonants in David's name. That's the point. And so not only is David literally by name included in the family tree, but even in the structure of the family tree that Matthew writes... David is the prominent character, and that's because Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And why is that so important? Then, that Jesus would be a descendant of David. Well, look back in your Old Testament, Second Samuel chapter seven. We've been referring to this passage a lot as we've looked at different messianic psalms in particular. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and look at verses 12 through 16. This is the Davidic covenant, the promise that God had made to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And you might say, well, it was Solomon who built a house for God's name, but surely Solomon did not and could not fulfill the second clause, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus does fulfill that promise from the Davidic covenant. Uh, Jesus has built and is building a house for God's name. Remember, Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the throne of his kingdom has been established forever. And in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And somebody might say, but Jesus couldn't have fulfilled that because he never committed iniquity. But again, remember the cross. On the cross, He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he did receive many stripes. Verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And then... To David, he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Solomon could not fulfill that. None of David's merely human descendants could have fulfilled that. Only Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Word who became flesh and tabernacled among us and who continues to live who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Only Jesus can fulfill this. Your throne shall be established forever. Amen. Ten times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is called the son of David. And so Matthew is trying to emphasize not just that Jesus happens to be a descendant of David, but that Jesus is the promised son of David. In the words of the hymn writer, great David's greater son. One of those ten times in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is called the son of God is on the occasion of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem during the last week of his life, when the crowd cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus is the legal heir to King David's throne. The fourth lesson about Jesus from the genealogy has to do with adoption. Adoption is important in Jesus' genealogy and kingdom. If you would have taken, or if Jesus would have taken a 23-and-me genetic test, Joseph would not have turned up on Jesus' list of ancestors. Jesus did not have Joseph's blood, his DNA. But Joseph was Jesus' legal earthly father by adoption. Joseph raising Jesus as his own son wasn't the first instance of this reality either. Adoption was a real thing in the Old Testament. There are the Old Testament examples of Pharaoh raising Moses as his own son. Eli raising Samuel. And Esther being raised by her older cousin Mordecai. So there was Old Testament precedent for Jesus inheriting his adopted father Joseph's genealogy. This is Jesus's genealogy without an asterisk. He was Joseph's adopted son, and this is important to each of us personally as believers, because through faith, the Bible teaches us, we are God's adopted children. We were in Galatians chapter 3 earlier, look at Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, Verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. There's the birth of Jesus. Now here's the purpose. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And... Because you are sons. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? Jesus came into the world. He was born and he died. That's how he redeemed us. We were were redeemed by his blood that we might receive adoption as as sons. And in case you're thinking, well, adoption makes us second-class sons. It makes us sons with an asterisk. In case we're thinking that, Paul says... And because you are sons, there's no asterisk, there's no qualifications, we are the children of God. And that's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And once again Jesus sets the stage for this reality. In his genealogy, Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph. Right. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 through 6, "In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ." And so adoption is important in Jesus' genealogy. That's why Joseph's genealogy is Jesus' genealogy, but it's also important in Christ's kingdom. We are God's adopted children through faith. It's not through blood, it's through faith, it's spiritual. Number five, the fifth lesson about Jesus from his genealogy is because of Jesus, bad circumstances can accomplish good purposes. So back in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation... Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. We've talked about Abraham, we've talked about David, it's interesting that Matthew includes the deportation to Babylon in Jesus' genealogy. And uh, part of the implication is that if it wasn't for the deportation to Babylon, Jesus would not have been born. And of course, that's impossible. This was God's eternal plan. But the deportation to Babylon was instrumental in Jesus' coming into this world. Just as Abraham was instrumental, just as David was instrumental just as all of the other names in Jesus's genealogy were instrumental in the incarnation of the god man so that's very interesting because the deportation to babylon was a dark time in israel's history it was not a highlight it was a low light It happened in about 597 B.C. And lots of people suffered. Lots of people died. The people were humiliated. There was no joy. And Psalm 137 was written on that occasion. If you look in Psalm 137, and notice verses 1 through 4, The uh, uninspired title of the psalm in my version of the Bible says, how shall we sing the Lord's song? That's the man given title to the psalm. And it says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And remember, Zion is... Uh, symbolic of God's presence and his rule and his reign over Israel, his blessing upon Israel, the, the uniqueness of Israel as God's chosen nation. It was symbolic of the worship of God. That was why they they sang in Israel. They, they sang in order to worship Jehovah, And so, as they thought about Zion, the the good old days, where they had come from, and when they thought about the destruction of the temple, the house of God that Solomon had built, they thought about the destruction of the nation and made them weep. Continuing on in verse 2. On the willows... There we hung up our lyres. They basically hung up their stringed instruments. They'd rather hang them up than use them because there was no reason for celebration and praise in in their minds. For there our captors, the Babylonians, required of us songs. They basically wanted them to perform for them like musical monkeys. And our tormentors, Mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So obviously, the Babylonians here didn't have the attitude of teachability. It's not like they wanted to expand their multiculturalism so that they could could learn how the Jews worshipped. They're tormenting them. They're making fun of them. They're mocking them. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And in verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Why are they in a foreign land? Not because they were on vacation, but because they were carried away into captivity. And they were carried away into captivity because God had threatened them. He warned them over and over again. From the giving of the law in Deuteronomy all the way up until the last king, I think it was Jeconiah, God warned them, if you turn away from me, I will give you over to the pagan nations around you. You will be carried off into captivity. And sure enough, they were. And so this was a very dark time in Israel's history, not just because of the physical manifestations of the the captivity But because of what what it represented, Israel had turned away from her God. And so God gave them over to the pagan lands. And yet, here it is. In the genealogy of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, God had a purpose for the deportation. God had a plan. That plan included chastising Israel. It included refining a remnant who would go back and repopulate uh, the nation of Israel for sure. But that plan also included Abraham's great seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and great David's greater son, King Jesus That was part of God's plan, especially the deportation into Babylon was part of the tapestry of events that God had designed in order to bring his son into the world. Humanly speaking, once again, the deportation doesn't happen. The birth of Jesus doesn't happen. Joseph and Mary would have never been born, let alone betrothed, if it wouldn't have been for the Babylonian captivity. What a lesson. This is the way that the God of the Bible works. The God of the Bible is the God of redemption. When he saves someone, you you don't pretend to be someone that you're not. You don't pretend as if your ugly past didn't really happen. It's a figment of your your imagination. You're going to turn over a new leaf, and you're going to start living a different way and just put your past out of your mind. That's not how God operates God redeems. God brought redemption out of the captivity in Babylon of his ancient people Israel. God redeemed Saul of Tarsus who hated Jesus and hated the church and tried to destroy it. And Jesus saved him. And I know, I know you guys, we we share our testimonies together, We talk about the grace and the mercy of the Lord. A lot of us come from really rough backgrounds. Some of you have um, drug addiction in your past, sexual immorality in your past, idolatry crime. We would probably blush if we all stood up and took turns sharing about the sins that Jesus saved us from. But Jesus does save us. Jesus saves us completely to the uttermost. And then, He actually saves us in such a way that we're able to see that our past, even though it is sin and it is evil, it doesn't make our sin any less sinful or evil. But we're able to see that God used even that to bring us to to, to himself, to bring us to Christ. If it wasn't for my sins in my past... I would have never ended up at Riverside Bible Church where I heard the gospel preached. And again, that doesn't mean that the things that led to us ending up there were all good and wholesome. But it does mean that God redeems his people from their sins, from their past. What a great example of Romans 8:28, and we know that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And that's why as Christians, we don't need to live in regret. We're, we're, we're never happy about our sins. We should never think of our sins as anything less than exceedingly sinful. But we don't need to live in regret because God has redeemed us from all of that. And God actually used all of that muck and mire and filthiness and darkness and ugliness. He used all of that to bring us to where we are now in Christ his Son. And if anything changed in all of that complex of events, then we're not here right now. God is the God of redemption. He does work all things together for our good. And Jesus' genealogy proves it. If you're not a Christian this morning, we're just scratching the surface There's so much about Jesus and we're we're, we're getting this just from his genealogy. This is just chapter one. Wait till you hear about his teaching. Wait till you hear about his miracles. Wait till you hear about his death and his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for who he is. We thank you that he is the eternal son of God. But we also thank you for who he is according to his human nature. He is the son of Abraham, and the son of David. We thank you for all that Jesus did to save his people, including us, from their sins. We just want to say thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.